You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Shalom. This is To Stir With Love, a criminal justice reform podcast. And tonight we have quite a panel with us. Uh, we are going to approach a subject that was sort of um, suggested by something we talked about when we talked about um, the inequities of the system of having to make your case in front of the parole board. Uh, it was an episode that we got a lot of good feedback from. And uh, really based on that episode, we decided uh, as actually Rabbi Scheinman's idea was here with us, Rabbi Yemen Scheinman, who is the head, the CEO of Hind Institute or Hind Helps, uh, which as you all know is a, uh, a, an associate, is a organization devoted uh, to the to the uh, criminal justice reform like we are, but also to help incarcerated persons and their families in all stages. He's joined tonight here, sharing an iPad together with his Rebidson, Abigail Scheinman, who is the outreach director, I believe. I think that's her official title, but of course, there's a lot more to that. We welcome her back, of course. And Rabbi Scheinman suggested to me that we talk about the issue of the rules and regulations regarding parole and um, probation, uh, although he mentioned that the state of Illinois and other states, parole doesn't really exist the way it does in New York, there still does exist and is still very important the rules and regulations that bind and guide and determine the persons who have been released uh, and what is considered a violation. And um, he pointed out to me uh, through the fact that he has heard from two persons that he is connected with who are here with us tonight. They are coming to us under their pseudonyms as Peter and Roger. Um, They are persons who have been convicted felons who have uh, are both now, uh, I believe they are both now released on probation and they are the ones that brought up to Rabbi Shimon the inequity of the inequities of the way the rules are being written. And it's through the, the lens that they are going to share with us that we are going to be able to understand how um, difficult it is, how frustrating it is. And I think all of us uh, here, including, of course, our other guest, who is not really my guest, my co-host, Rabbi Yitzchak Kolakowski, who is the head of chaplaincy at Waymark Prison, uh, that when you have rules and regulations, when you have a system that you need to conform to, whether you're a student in a classroom, whether you're a worker in a business office, whether you're a rabbi that has to work for a congregation, things need to be set down clear or else those things can be used maliciously. So I want to hear just, we're going to go alphabetically, um, Peter, so why don't you talk a little bit about the rules, your frustrations with them, and how that uh, the vagaries of those rules have impacted you. Peter, go ahead. Thank you. Thank you for uh, inviting me. I'm happy to be here. Um, I was released from federal prison um, about a year and a half ago. And for the first year after my release, I was under both 
an Illinois mandatory supervised release and a federal supervised release. So I had both layers for my first year. And uh, thankfully, I've successfully completed the Illinois year and now have just the federal to deal with. Uh, but while I was under both layers, um, the problems with each individual one were exacerbated by uh, having these additional um, layers on top of each other. And so uh, I think I'll, I'll start by saying that um, there are a set of written rules, uh, both for each state and for the federal. And um, it's difficult to write something that is a clear rule that has no exceptions and that can be applied evenly in all cases. So I'm very sympathetic to the fact that it's hard to write a good rule. Um, but having uh, been on the side where those rules are restricting my rights and my abilities, it is very difficult um, when the written rules are vaguely worded and all of the discretion in the interpretation of those rules is with the authority figure who is uh, in charge of enforcing them. So um, well, why don't you give know, us an example, Peter, of, of, of that? Uh, give an example of a rule that was frustrating because of how vague it was. Um, sure. Let me, uh, let me think about one in particular. Yeah, a great example would be the conditions around employment. Um, there are requirements that your parole officer, your supervising probation officer, there's a lot of different terms for it, um, that they be fully informed of your employment. And the way it is worded, they can interpret it so that they actually feel they have the right to approve or disapprove of your employment. So there may be conditions or even laws that will prevent you from working in certain industries or jobs, um, but separate and above and beyond those rules, um, the parole agents tend to exercise as if they had the authority to approve or disapprove of any individual job rather than just to be informed of what those yeah. jobs are. So, so, so Peter, you don't know the, you, I, I, number six of the standard 13 rules of federal supervision states the defendant shall notify the probation officer at least 10 days prior to any change in residence or employment. So shall notify. It doesn't seem vague. All you have to do is notify them. How could you interpret that? That, In other words, the fact that, it, well, I, I'm going to, you tell me, how is it that that could empower the officer, parole or probation on what job you can take? You tell me. Because the officer will tell you that you need to get permission from them. If you then fail to get that permission, and they decide that they are going to, quote unquote, violate you over your not following their rule, then you will be fighting that rule after you have been taken into custody and put in your local county jail. So anything that you've done up to that point as far as establishing housing or a job or relationships is put on hold while you- Well, again, I- so tell me, Peter, how is it that in the you, let's say, let's say yourself, Peter will inform his probation officer 10 days before he wants to make a, a switch. Mm -hmm. So how can that be interpreted as, and if I, if let's say the probation officer doesn't like it, you can't take that job. 
right? That's that, that is because uh, for the state of Illinois, and I don't have the wording of this one, uh, for the state of Illinois, at least, um, there is basically a rule that says that you must follow all other rules that your probation officer tells you to follow. Okay, so that's that's like that's like that's like that's like wishing for ten more wishes, right? Yeah. When the genie of the lamp, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right? Like they say, you can't wish for more wishes, but here it's like right. you have to follow everything they say as well. So yes, that's really- even if even if that instruction is unconstitutional or illegal. Right. You can fight that and you can win, but you're going to be fighting that fight after you have been taken into custody. So you're telling me that it's in this in the state of Illinois, the one that you just read, I, I, I don't understand how it could be interpreted as you need their permission for the job. You need to well, tell was, them. That was a federal rule that I read you. Right. And now we're talking about Illinois. So right. we're mixing so, a little bit. Right. So in the state, Rabbi, Rabbi Kovalevich, yes, go ahead. The interpretation is. Since you have to notify them, they're meaning that you have to notify me because we have to check out the job before you take it. Okay. That's how they're interpreting it. Right. In mm-hmm. other words, notif- in other words, the way it's now I get it. The implication is why does it need 10 days? Because 10 days is the normal amount of time it would take to do your research about what type of job it is to get back to you and give you the okay. That's probably the reason why they assume that informing 10 days means so for them to clear the job for you right right because if you were perhaps a, a bank robber um and the job that you've accepted is as a bank teller you know they want the opportunity to investigate talk to the bank make sure they're aware of your criminal background I see. and that they're still willing to hire you um so yeah i think that's a very good um interpretation. I try to be as generous as possible um, with interpreting other people's motives and actions. Okay. And I think I think the agents are trying to do what they believe is the right thing. Um, we just have some very big disagreements about what the right thing is. But the second thing that you mentioned, Peter, the thing about, and you have to follow everything the, the, the parole officer says, you're saying that's written in, in Illinois state law, that whatever right. he says, whatever he says, you have to listen to. Even the, right, which means listen first, fight later. But then yeah. what happens is you end up being in this uh, now. Now you, know, you strike. Yeah. You know, look, no, this this is uh, audio, not video. But Peter, you you don't strike me as a ferocious type of fellow. Uh, it, it, can you tell me have have you personally been frustrated by this and have had to fight over this d- these definitions? You have, yeah. Absolutely. And, um, you know, that the format of that fighting uh, involves paying lawyers fees and going in front of your judge. Um, so ideally, you're going to do that proactively. So you're not fighting that after you've already been taken into custody. So if there's um, a disagreement over interpretation of a vague rule, or you're unhappy with a condition being applied to you, if you want to avoid, you know, uh, the whole like, ask uh, forgiveness versus ask permission, um, you definitely, in this scenario, have to ask permission. When you get an answer you don't like, you then have to pay a lawyer and go to court. Um, there's no doing it and asking forgiveness later because you're opening yourself up to reincarceration. Mm-hmm. And um, so this has, as you said, this has affected you. Um, you had to fight it in order to be able uh, to get this, what what you wanted. Before we turn to, to to Roger, I wanted to ask you, you know, it seems that like in all of these sort of 
unequal relationships where um, the legislation is not as compact and correct as it should be, there's always the human factor that can make it worse. Um, so sometimes you can actually have a sort of a, a broken system, but at least the people involved, as you said, are, are good people and are trying to do the right thing. Um, so Peter, in your history, have, have you had to, have you felt that the parole or in this case, the uh, probation officer was like sort of like a mean guy who was just trying to uh, take advantage or was he, was he a straight, basically a straight shooter who was maybe as frustrated as you were, but since he's coming from another direction, you know, you know he, he just has to interpret the way he sees it. Or do you feel that you sometimes were involved with basically a, a corrupt fellow, a person who just wanted to use these vague laws to take advantage of you? That's a very difficult question, but I'm going to try to answer it as honestly as possible. Um, my answer is that for the most part, my experience with people in these kind of para-professional policing roles is that they seem to be uh, folks who originally wanted to actually be in policing, uh, working for the FBI, the CIA, or the police, and were not uh, selected or qualified for those roles. And instead, they're in these para roles, and that this is an opportunity for them to exercise control and power. And um, that um, they're definitely, whether they start that way or not, they are enculturated to have a streak of sadism in them and to enjoy controlling and, and exercising power over other people. Wow. And you have felt that sting, and I'm sure, and, and you felt muzzled and powerless to do anything because of yes. you knew the control that they had. So, so you believe this system actually sticks its tendrils into the worst parts of a person and actually festers and builds that negative persona because it, it, it allows the Simon Legree <laughs> to become the, I don't know, the, the Simon Legree could turn into, you know, the, the Genghis Khan or whatever it is. You know, it, it is yeah. the culture. If, they, if they're too soft and they're too kind, uh, they are reprimanded for that behavior and uh -huh. they are told to be tougher. Uh -huh. So in other words, even if they have a good sense of things, their superiors are egging them on. Okay, yeah. Peter, stick around. Roger, uh, does your uh, experience somewhat echo uh, what you heard from Peter? Yes, it does, most definitely. Uh, there's a lot of what uh, Peter has said, which I would just reinforce and have felt the same thing. My situation was a little bit different. Um, I spent uh, a year at the county jail and then was released or and am on probation. Uh, that <clears throat> created a number of problems because I was supposed to be transferred from one county jail to another county jail because of where I live and that affected where I would then be able to be for my probation. The um, initial county jail never transferred me after multiple requests. So then when I did get out and being a convicted felon, the second county did not want me. 
So I became homeless for a year, for two and a half years. And after multiple requests and going through the bureaucracy and going to court and actually having the judge say, oh, take it back to the Department of Correction and go through their system again. And it was truly a, a, a circular type of a scenario. And then denied again and again. And for no reason that really was sounded sound because I was able to prove a variety of things, but because of the unlimited power of the Department of Correction, um, I did not get in. And then finally, um, working with certain advocacy groups and working with people, I don't even know exactly how, that one county was able to talk to the other district and get me in. And when I've asked who or what, how, how this occurred, I don't even know. Um, one of the things I want to share but, but, that you talked but, but, about. Roger, before you get to that, um, was this problem that you found yourself in, this very frustrating one, was it tied to uh, an exactitude or a vagary of the way the rule was written? Was that what the issue was about? Or was there nothing written? Well, part of it is there was nothing written. The judge in my sentencing approved that I could be transferred to the other um, county jail. However, I couldn't get the first county jail to do it. And actually I was in a unique situation that I was on probation while in the county jail. And I asked my probation officer numerous times to start the process. And she didn't start the process until the last week before I was going to be released. Had she started the process 90 days or whatever, <clears throat> and I would have found out that I, I would be released and be homeless, I would have then be, been able to be proactive and hire an, an attorney in order to try to get this transfer facilitated. See, the other thing, and Paul talked, uh, excuse me, Peter talked about when you are out, as we are right now and speaking to you, both Peter and I have access to the internet and we can do a certain amount of investigation so we have an idea. When you are confined, um, when I was confined, I had no access to internet. I had no access to, I, I had very little access to anything um, other than a telephone. Mm. So, and so, so Roger, you were going to mention to me another example of something, and I know we had a conversation the other day about something, a, a very vague, something that you thought was written in such a vague way that you thought was um, being used uh, in a way to limit you severely. Right. And, and I'm going to just read to you one of my rules, and I'm going to use John Doe in the middle of it because um, it's... it's not to have contact or attempt to contact with John Doe nor any other Doe's regarding your incarceration, their families, their mem family members without prior agent approval. Contact includes face-to-face -face contact, contact facilitated by third parties and any other form of communication, not, excuse me, any other form of communication, including, but not limited to telephone, computer, mail, or any other electronic or scientific means. When that was given to me and read to me by my probation officer, I asked my probation officer, what are scientific means? 
Okay. I mean, it seems, Roger, that what they're trying to say is, let's say you and John Doe are a bad mix and you can't have anything in any way, shape or form to be connected to John Doe, right? But what, what was your question? A what science- are scientific means? I don't know. I can understand all of those other ones, but what is scientific means? I need to know to avoid that because that <laughs> is a specific thing. And Rabbi, will you tell me what is scientific means? Again, so, but, but did you think, was this just weird or did you think this was, this was written in a way to limit you even further? This is a standard rule. And so my question is, and, and on the end, it needs to be signed and it says, agent writes, I have reviewed and explained these rules to the offender. And then the offender, I sign. I have received a copy of these rules. Well, I think that it's justified for me to ask what this means. Now, oh, <laughs> again, other than making, you know, sort of a, a you know, a dialectic point, I mean, I, I can see you, you know, scoring in a debate against them. Like the debate captain will say, okay, good point there. That's, that seems to be crazy. But, but, you know, you heard from what you heard, what Peter said, Peter said, you know, he couldn't switch jobs. Okay, so you want to talk, you would like, are you, do you feel limited because it says scientific means? If you agree. I'm afraid to break the rule. In my situation, if I break a rule, okay, I can not only go back into um, jail while they are investigating it, but then I can be sent to prison for another three years. And then when I come out of prison, I get another three years of probation all over again. So I really want to know what I need to do and how to follow them. The other thing that Peter said, and I'm glad you brought up the um, employment situation. Uh, I've gone into the gone back and I'm working in construction and I'm a union member and my name is on the union list. And it's kind of like a giant temp agency. So they call me and then I go and I typically drive truck. And so my rule is obtain approval from your agent prior to changing residence or employment. In the case of an emergency, notify your agent of the change within 72 hours. Well, let me explain to you. When the union calls me, they ask me, are you available to go to work? I have been called at 4.30 in the afternoon to report at 6.30 in the morning. Now, I need to have permission in order to be able to do that. If I don't work, I'm in violation of the courts. In addition, they're not going to wait. They're going to go to the next person. Mm -hmm. The other thing is the wording of this is um, I need to get approval from my agent prior to changing employment. Okay. Well, when the the project is done, I'm done. There's no way I can get approval because we never know. It's, It's weather dependent. So here again, I will be in violation of this, and I'm at I'm at their mercy. In other words, you're afraid, Roger. You're afraid as a temp guy who various construction uh, people are going to call you at various jobs. You're worried that if you get on the wrong side of your probation officer, he'll go and look at the places you've worked and said you violated your probation when you went to work in all these different days because you didn't get approval or that was considered a change. You believe, I think I'm saying your point, that that's not called changing jobs. 
my job is to be a temp guy whenever they need me, right? As opposed to, right? As opposed to working for one company and going to another company, you believe your job consistently is to, your job is to actually be at, at various jobs whenever they call you. So. You are correct. Or, but I, it's vague in a certain way. I get another, another one that is interesting. Obtain written approval from your agent prior to purchasing, trading, selling, or operating a motor vehicle. This is very interesting. I'll repeat it. Obtain written approval from your agent prior to purchasing, trading, selling, or operating a motor vehicle. I have asked my agent numerous times for written approval to operate my, I personally have three cars and an ATV. They won't give me written approval. Working construction on any given day, I can be operating six different pieces of, of motorized vehicles. A bulldozer is a motorized vehicle. So give me, at, in this situation, it was explained to me, they don't want people who don't to, to, to rent a car and drive all over the place, et cetera. That's not my issue. They don't, ever wor they don't worry about me doing that. Eliminate the rule is what I've asked. That way, if they tell me it's not a problem, get rid of it. Peter, I know you wanted to uh, to add something to Roger's point. Peter? Yeah, thank you, Roger, for bringing that up. Um, the general MO uh, for these officers is to put only those things in writing that negatively affect you and the interpretation of your performance of your responsibilities and never to put anything in writing that is a positive answer, a yes, or gives you anything that you could ever use in court. Um, it is incredibly difficult to manage that process and to build a case um, because they are very intentional about not giving you any ammunition to use that is actually in writing, but, if it would be helpful to you. But, but it would seem, you know, Peter and Roger, that in Roger's case, he's been working and his officer knows he's working and he hasn't come down on him. So you know, Roger's scared that I could, but Roger, don't you feel a certain sense of, uh, he hasn't, no one stopped you. No one says you can't do construction. They know you're operating a machinery. They know you have cars. Nobody has said anything yet. You're just worried because you, you don't have any trust. Correct, Roger? That's true and very true in, in part. The other thing is, what they can do is, if something, if I were to slip up and do something really, um, in a, even if I were to slip up, like for instance, I went to a funeral without getting permission to go to a funeral, okay? Then all of a sudden, every single one of these other little things that I do, and they know that I do, okay? Uh, there's a rule that says I can't purchase things on credit. And I said, please get rid of that. I went in with my bank statements, my credit card statements, and I showed them, I have no debt. Get rid of this. Well, it's one of our rules. And, and just as Peter had said earlier, I've discussed with them regarding, um, as like in, in the recovery of, of being an alcoholic, for instance, they say, well, you just need to recover. And I'm like, I need to have benchmarks, measurable benchmarks. And they don't want to put that there. Plain students have, they want there to be clear 
directives of wh what are the what are the levels they need to reach in order to get the grade, in order to understand where they're holding, in order for there to be good feedback, and that creates a better classroom environment. And that's true, as I said in the intro, on any situation when we're dealing with people working together. So I, I get it. And I want to bring in uh, Rebitz and Abby in a minute, but I did want to mention something that Roger said to me. Roger mentioned to me when we were prepping for this program yesterday that one of the things that was frustrating him, and again, I'm, I, I know I, I, I don't want to put words in your mouth. One of the things that you said to me was that you're not supposed to be in an area where other felons are, right? If there's other felons that uh, are in this area, you're not supposed to be there. And you mentioned that the way things work, the construction business is full of felons, right? You need people, yes. you need people with, 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 with muscles, you need people with car driving experience, people are going to go up on the girders. And for many felons, that's the jobs they take. So how can you expect to be, this is what your question was, how can you expect, how can you write a rule, don't be with other felons, when you are limited to basically be in professions, which is going to be a magnet for other felons, so, right, so that was a question that you had, and you felt that this was also something that can come down on you, although you haven't heard yet from your officer that it's wrong for you to be working in construction, you are sort of thinking like and say, well, I'm, there are other felons here. Um, you know, again, I have a little answer to that question, uh, to that to that point. Then maybe it means not at, at your work, but it means like let's say you know let's say there's a pool hall like where you know like I'm thinking old Hollywood where all the felons gather you know and stuff like that and and and, and like you, but because clearly you know you don't have you you don't have you can't uh, limit yourself so completely that if you find out there's another felon there, you have to quit that job. That sounds strange. Uh, but Roger, it definitely does seem frustrating. Rebbitz and Abby. Um, something that Peter said that I think is a sad thing, and I don't know the inside scoop, is if a probation officer or a parole officer were really to do their job and not consequent sanction, put holds on or put people back in jail, it may look to the supervisors that they're not doing their job. And is there, I don't know if there's actually saying a quota. You're saying there's like a quota, like like police have of give, giving tickets at the end of the month. They have to show that, because the, 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 the default assumption is that these felons are in violation. And unless we see the parole and probation officers writing them up for these violations it sounds like nothing is going on so they might that that could very well be the case as an educator did did you ever grade with a bell curve and said i am going to use a perfect bell curve i have graded on a curve and i've gotten a lot of pushback for doing that um, what is the purpose of parole and probation so one of the purposes is to protect society the other purpose is for reintegration help the person. And often the parole officer has mandates to help the person find employment and a home. At the same time, the rules um, are so strict with housing and with employment that they end up homeless and without jobs. And then that actually impacts the first purpose, which is to protect society because the last thing you'd want is somebody who's wandering the streets and has no employment. So it's almost a catch 22. 
and the parole officers try to do their jobs, but there's a lot of liability. And so they protect themselves against the liability. However, there's no accountability. And there needs to be also accountability in terms of them, in terms of how they're helping these people to integrate. So the rules are unclear. And, and sometimes you have wonderful people who are parole officers who are doing their jobs. But I've met some that are that came up to one of our people and said, my job is to get you back in because you're nasty. You cannot leave your home for anything, not even for your counseling, not even for groceries. You can go to work and come back. And so I'm not saying that is the average, that's the standard, but there is no accountability. Nobody is monitoring these parole officers. Nobody is checking if they're following rules. And when you have police or parole officers without accountability, you have problems. So we have people who cannot re-enter. They cannot re-enter because society doesn't help them find employment and housing, but parole and probation also doesn't work. They set the mandates, but then there's so many conditions. And some of those conditions really are not related to their crime or to reintegration or to protection of society. It needs to be justified. Um, so, so Rabbitson, really, you know, you're trying to expand this argument beyond, I mean, it's hinted at by what Peter and Roger are saying. You're saying that the people who are behind the system want to keep it this way because they're, in large part, mainly want to continue to punish and not allow reintegration to occur. And therefore, this broken system, uh, they're happy with it, and they're not going to want to have things tightened up with real rules that are written in a way. No, I, I do believe they want reintegration to occur. I don't believe that's the case. The problem is, is that the rules and the liability that they have to follow don't allow reintegration to occur. They don't have a mandate. They're not social workers. The, a parole officer doesn't have training in counseling. So really, they don't, not only do they not have the ability, they're forced to deal with liability. So anybody in that situation would have a lot of difficulty, even the most well-meaning ones. What we need is some accountability of these parole officers. They also need to be accountable. And the rules need to be adjusted to the crime. So if somebody didn't do a financial crime, why would you not let them have any credit, right? Okay. If somebody, um, if the crime wasn't related, let's say, for example, you're not allowed to go into a park. Well, sometimes they say you're not allowed to go into a, um, a building which you didn't know was adjacent to a park, right? And all of a sudden you're in violation. So sometimes the rules are so unclear that these people these people go into violation and and they have to fight it and but that could mean they're back in prison and often a lawyer has to come in and say really there was no intent here there isn't really a problem um based on a vagarity of a parole officer and he so, has no accountability for it one of the things I, I appreciate what you're saying one of the things i think that um 
we've tried to do in this program is not only bring up issues, but also at least begin to suggest where the avenue of change might begin. So it sounds like in legislation, perhaps, demanding clearer uh, mandates and, and rules. Roger, you wanted to say something? I Yitzchak? Well, well I, I, one thing I guess I'll say is things are different in every state. I think we've discussed that before. I mean, I work in Pennsylvania. We we just hired a new superintendent, which I guess would be was called a warden in uh, in most prisons. And he he's been telling us, you know, that justice and mercy, accountability and redemption. Yes, they can both live in the same house. That's a a saying that he's been pushing very much and encouraging kindness uh, within our correctional facility where, where where I'm employed. Uh, even above and beyond what is normal. So to to hear that in other states, that if you are too kind, you're in trouble. That's that's very that's very alarming to me, um, because that's not the environment that I'm used to. Uh, you know, kindness. Uh, is, it's w- w- Yitzchak, within Waymart itself. Do you fe- see some vagary within the rules of what I am familiar? I'm not really that familiar with what what goes on in um in parole but what my my understanding of the vagary is more the other way is that things are often tolerated uh you know i think there, there was a song about uh, uh pancho Villa with uh, i think willie nelson and uh and and uh, merle haggard saying about they let him go just to be kind you know they they they, they could have caught him but they didn't and general there is an idea that if someone isn't actually hurting someone else and there might be a violation, they might look the other way. But on the other hand, I know I, before COVID, uh, before the, the, the shutdowns in, in, uh, in reaction to COVID is how I would uh, word it, um, we were taking in a lot of parole violators. And just about every one of them told me, oh, well, it's only a technical violation. I, don't, I didn't know exactly what that meant. You know, I'm the chaplain. I'm not a pro officer. I'm not involved in those things. We do sometimes have requests that, uh, you know, inmates would like chaplains to say something in regard to parole hearings. We do not do that, uh, particularly because, you know, one thing, one of the other chaplains said, well, we'd just be doing that all day if that was, if we were involved in that, you know, so we don't, uh, we're not really involved in how parole works, but what do you feel about uh, what Robertson Abbey is saying that maybe every parole officer should be working in tandem with a social worker, uh, each of them dealing with different aspects? Of... My, my understanding is that is that's how it's work. That's how it works. That's at least in, in Pennsylvania. I think Chicago, I think Illinois is it, it sounds like a very broken system in Illinois because I I don't see that. I don't, that, you know, I see that they have all, that's what goes on. That's what goes on in Pennsylvania. I, I'll tell you in New York, again, my, all of my experiences are peripheral to the parole system. Uh, something that, you know, I, I, my full-time position is, is in the, is in the Department of Corrections in Pennsylvania. And I have a part-time position with the Office of Mental Health in New York as a chaplain. And I've seen that 
people who are not severely mentally ill, who really don't fit into the culture of the patients who are residents at the mental hospital where I serve, uh, they have been sent there on parole. You know, they, there were men who were under the impression that they're going home on parole, and instead they're being sent to a mental hospital where uh, I'll admit they'll have some kind of a mental illness, but nothing as severe as the others. And quite often, that's a recipe for disaster. I mean, I've seen... Sure, really because the, cause we, this, this is the recipe for disaster whenever you have felons of various degrees housed together, like like the Poraduma, as we say, it's Metame, yeah. the Tahorim, and Metar, the Tameyan, it really, really creates uh, a, a very toxic mix in that case. So, um, you know, I, I've seen I've seen people get murdered on account of that. I've seen yeah. I've seen patients in the hospital die uh, at the hands of 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 these men who were sent there on, you know, and they tried. I know they tried to cover it up, but it it got out in the media, and it was uh, it was a quite, quite a horrific I, thing. I, yes, all right. I can I can tell that this is something very very difficult, and it's clearly it shows in your voice how how difficult this thing is. Yeah, I mean, I mean, so. one one thing I noticed in comparing these two states where I serve is that in Pennsylvania they closed all the mental hospitals and and opened prisons, and in New York they closed prisons and and opened mental hospitals and. Uh, you, we would one would think that you know the the visceral, you know, idea would be that the better thing to do is more mental hospitals and and less prisons, and I haven't seen that be the case. I mean, I I know, I mean, where I work, Waymart, they it's a program oriented prison, so we you know they they'll send inmates who are mentally ill from other prisons, they'll send them to, to Waymart because to, we can provide them the programs that they need. And I've, I've personally seen that to be much more successful the way that things are done in Pennsylvania. Uh, but in regards to the, these vagaries of, uh, 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 you know, because again, we're, they're sending people who don't belong in mental hospitals on, on parole in New York, they're sending them into mental hospitals and it's it's just it's horrific it's really yeah. horrific i don't see that happening in pennsylvania if someone is yeah. not ready for parole they're not going they're not they're not sending somebody uh to be homeless uh you have to have a home plan before i got before it you leave. and then uh okay well, let's get peter in i know yeah. peter you wanted to i know you had a uh perhaps some uh direction for us to go peter go ahead sure thank you uh i do want to comment that um the idea of technical violations and people returning to prison. Um, in, in my definition, that is people returning to prison and it's the vast majority of people that are returned on supervision or parole for uh, violating the terms of their parole and supervision, things that would not have been a crime prior to them being incarcerated. That's my definition of a technical violation. Uh, but to address your question of where do we go from here, um, I've been working since my release with people in the criminal justice reform movement um, very broadly. And um, the quote from Gandhi, uh, whatever you do for me, but without me, you do against me. 
Um, that is a lesson at the core of the civil rights movement is the idea that those closest to the problem are the ones who can bring the solution. And if the solution does not involve their opinions, it is not going to succeed. So what I would propose is that those people who have successfully completed supervision and parole and are now successful returning members of society need to be intrinsically involved in the design and execution of parole and supervision in this country. Those are the mentors that people need leaving incarceration. Those are the people who can actually help them to succeed, not people who have been trained out of a book uh, and who are, you know, um, working for causes that include um, maintaining their own jobs and their own salaries. So a vo yeah, very, volunteer. Yes, very volunteer. Well Thank you. So they have to, and, and they have to be involved, of course, with the legislators, so the people on the ground floor in terms of rewriting these these rules in a way that 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 will that'll definitely lead to some sort of growth. Um, Roger, did you want to put an exclamation I, point I on that? I agree with what Peter said, and I guess to my my summary is there. There's a few things. One is if you're looking at 35, 40 percent uh, rates of recidivism in a business, if you had 40 percent of failure, 40 percent of waste you would revamp what's going on. What is currently happening, I, first, I look at it as the true definition of insanity, doing the same thing the same way and expecting different results. And that's what we have to do. We have to redesign it and, and take it um, and, and look at it this way. We also know mass incarceration is not working. We have to try something else. Yeah, we understand when you've heard that message as well. Well, again, I think this is something that, uh, as we said, was a byproduct of a previous conversation, but I think it, it, it deserves its own space. Um, I, I, if, if people are able to uh, understand all the details, then we might be stuck in legislation hell. But what we need to have is good people who are going to be effective, who are going to run it, who are going to be connected. And it's obviously a process. You're, I think we all agree that the system we have now needs change. The way that change occurs is, is definitely open to argument and conversation, but we do need, uh, you know, we do need obviously everyone's input. And I think, as I said before, nobody wants to operate under the shadow of the threat that anything you do might be wrong. That, of course, is life deadening. I think, as Roger pointed out, the Torah the thing that binds all of us as Jews is meant about knowing what you need to fulfill and how much is a mitzvah, how much is beyond, when do you get your schar, as you said. I think that we need to take a lesson, a page out of our own legal texts and apply them uh, to the law of this great country that we live in. So that's about it, my friends, for this week. I want to thank everybody here that was involved uh, for uh, their time and efforts. And we hope that we're going to push the needle again in a positive way. Take care, everyone. We'll find you. We'll see you again next time. Thanks so much. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.